Good morning. Here we are again. So um, today we're continuing our study in Genesis, uh, the early chapters in particular, and you'll remember that Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and it's the book of beginnings. But more than that, it's the start of the story of God. And in this book, we see how our creator interacts with history, uh, with us, his creations, and how he aims the entire course of the universe towards salvation and redemption. So this morning, we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 4 to 14, and I'm going to go one verse beyond that, taking liberties, verse 15. That's going to be part of next week's sermon, but it's also very relevant to today's. So Genesis 2, 4 to 15, if you're reading along, you'll find this very near the start of your Bibles. I'm using the English Standard Version, the ESV translation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed." And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then the bonus verse. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. We thank you, God, for your precious word. Amen. So I'm going to share with you a very personal piece of information about me. I don't often do this because what I'm about to tell you is so polarizing. Uh, Once I've told you this, you may find it undermines my credibility so completely that you can't bear to listen to the rest of this sermon, in which case you have my full permission to have a good snooze for the next 30 minutes or so. Are you ready? I am a massive sci-fi fan. Oh dear. (laughs) I was was brought up on the stuff. So Asimov's short stories, novels by Arthur C. Clarke and Robert A. Heinlein. And worse than that, my entire family were avid Star Trek fans. Can I get a woo? (laughs) So, (laughs) tough crowd. So that explains a lot, you say. I I grew up with Star Trek films, and right into my teenage years, my nerdy friends and I, we eagerly anticipated the next installment. When I was years old, the second film came out in the Star Trek franchise, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. 
And if you're not a fan of Star Trek, you could be forgiven for thinking that this film might be a historical biopic of the infamous founder of the Mongolian Empire, Genghis Khan, but not so. It's set a bit later in history than that. Set in the year 2285, in fact. And coincidentally, I think that's also the year that our government will finally have a workable plan for Brexit. Uh, And in this film, we see that the uh, scientists, they've developed a device called the Genesis device. And this thing is capable of turning an uninhabitable planet into one that's fit for human life. Essentially, the device vaporizes a planet's surface and then reforms it at the subatomic level into a, an hospitable environment for human life. And at the end of the film, the antagonist, Khan Noonien Singh, he launches the Genesis device intending to use it as a weapon to destroy our heroes. And he knows that this action is going to end his life, so he gives a following quote, and this is from Moby Dick. To the last I will grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. The dude had serious anger management issues. And so this, uh, the Genesis device goes about making this planet fit for human life. And this is a process known in science fiction as terraforming. Long before any science fiction writer had thought of this expression, we already have the concept shown in one of the oldest books surviving, the book of Genesis. You're wondering where the segue was going to be, weren't you? So you might remember from the first sermon in the series that I mentioned that the book of Genesis inspires a lot of controversy. And one of the controversies is the alleged conflict between the creation account in Genesis 1 with that in Genesis 2. But in truth, there's no conflict. Genesis 1 offers an orderly account day by day of creation. Genesis 2, on the other hand, is about terraforming. Now, terraforming, not by way of some quasi-hypothetical device. This is terraforming by the power of Almighty God. So, remembering that this is the story of God, as we look at this passage, let's ask ourselves three questions. Who, what, and why? So, firstly, who is this passage about? Secondly, what is he doing? And thirdly, why is he doing it? So, the first question, the who. I dwelt on the the who in the first sermon in this series, and there's a really good reason for revisiting this question. So verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And in your Bibles, you'll probably see that the word Lord is written there in capital letters. Now, this is the first time that we see the phrase Lord God anywhere in the Bible. And you won't be surprised to hear that the phrase has particular significance. The word God is Elohim again. Uh, We've come across that in a few sermons in this series so far. Elohim, the plural and singular, the Trinitarian God. Elohim is the God of divine power. The word signifies royalty, majesty, strength and preeminence. And it's used over two and a half thousand times in the Bible. In verse 4, we see that word paired with a Hebrew Uh, with another special word, and unfortunately I can't tell you what that word is. And it's not because I'm awkward or because I don't speak ancient Hebrew. The problem is that no one knows how to pronounce the word. It's represented in the Hebrew as four letters. 
And these letters are together known as the Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton, based on a Greek word that means, wait for it, four letters. So we don't, we don't know how to pronounce this word because the letters are a bit ambiguous and certain vowel sounds just weren't written in the biblical Hebrew. So this has led people to speculate about how the word is pronounced. Um, the English transliteration, that's turning it into English letters, uh, is Y-H-W-H. And because of this, the two most common pronunciations are Jehovah and Yahweh. And probably neither of those is correct. Um, modern Jews don't try to pronounce the word at all. They'll use words like Adonai instead. And Christian Bibles use Lord, which is what Adonai means. So the Hebrew lesson over, what is the point of this? The point is that Genesis is being increasingly specific about who it is that's involved in creation. So let's just for the sake of argument go for Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God, the name God used to introduce himself to Moses in Exodus 3. This is Exodus 3, verses 14 to 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let me just read to you some of the ESV's at the ESV Study Bible's commentary on this word Yahweh. The divine name Yahweh has suggested to scholars a range of likely nuances of meaning. One, that God is self-existent and therefore not dependent on anything else for his own existence. Two, that God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. Three, that God is immutable in his being and character and thus is not in the process of becoming something different from what he is e.g. the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Hebrews 13.8. And four, that God is eternal in his existence. Let's just go over those four points again. This is all about Yahweh. These are the key characteristics of God. So this is part of our exercise in reading God's story, in learning who he is. So the first point, God is self-existent. And we understand the universe, humanly speaking, as a series of interconnected causes. It sounds fancy, but it just means that my existence is largely because of my parents' existence, theirs because of their own parents, and so on. But there can't be an infinite number of parents going backwards through time. At some point, there needs to be something that kicks this all off. And this is what we believe, isn't it? God started everything. So God is the only being whose existence doesn't depend on something else. No one made God. No one created him. He has no parents. He is the uncaused cause. The reason he exists is because he exists. And I know that to those of you who think philosophically, this just all sounds a bit circular. But you know, God, we just read it, haven't we? That God says of himself, I am who I am. That's also circular. Stay with me. So we have to accept one or the other 
of two apparently impossible scenarios. Either we have an infinite regression of causes, parent, grandparent, great-grandparent, and so on, to infinity, or we have a starting point caused by nothing other than itself. Both of these are impossible by human standards. Clear? Yeah. This is hard stuff to think about. So the first point, God's existence doesn't depend on anything else. He is self-existent. The second point, God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. Well, that's Genesis for starters, isn't it? We're learning about God as creator right now. Sustainer? We couldn't exist without God. If God ceased to exist, so would we. We could spend a lot of time on that point, but let's keep going. The third point, uh, God is immutable in his being and character. Immutable is just another fancy word that means he doesn't change. What God is, he always has been and he always will be. And when we read through the Bible, we see different characteristics of God. He interacts with his creation sometimes sternly, sometimes lovingly, but he's the same God in all instances. Thomas Chisholm put it like this in his wonderful hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And the fourth point, God is eternal. And if you think about it, that has to be the case. If you say nothing caused God to exist, well, he always must have existed. So four key characteristics we learn about God, just from unpacking that word Yahweh. He's self-existent, the creator and sustainer of everything. He is unchanging, and he is eternal and everlasting. It's a lot of meaning in those four letters, isn't it? There's one other absolutely super thing to understand about the word Yahweh. Right, so it's generally written Lord in our Bibles. And the reason for this is partly because that's how we see the word in one of the earliest ever translations of the Bible. The Septuagint is the earliest surviving translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, and it's translated around about the second or third centuries after Christ. And in the Septuagint, the word Yahweh is translated into Greek as Kyrios, which means Lord. And the super thing that I mentioned is that this is how the Greek text also refers to Christ as Kyrios, Lord. And so in doing this consistently, we see that Jesus Christ is given the same title as God. Accepting him then as a member of the Trinity, the Godhead. Father, God is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you're any doubt about this, check out John 8, 58. And Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. See, that's a direct quote from the Exodus 3 passage that we just read, where God calls himself, I am, and he calls himself Yahweh. So Jesus has just told the Pharisees that he's God, and their immediate reaction is to try to stone him for blasphemy. You see why this word Yahweh is so important? 
Now, Elohim, as I said, appears in the Bible two and a half thousand times. Yahweh is there nearly 7,000 times. You think God might be trying to get our attention. So reading that word Yahweh, Israelite readers of Genesis 2 would have known that this text is talking about their God, the God who's entered into a positive relationship with them, a relationship of grace and blessing. So that answers our first question, the who, who is this about? Second question, what, what is he doing? Now, if you heroically managed to remain awake after I dropped the whole sci-fi bomb, you'll immediately respond, he's terraforming, Rob. And you'd be right. Genesis 1 tells us about what God made and the order in which he made it. And now in Genesis 2, we see God shaping the world. Verse 5 tells us that this is happening before all the plant life is starting to thrive, before humans start to cultivate the land. Incidentally, and we'll come back to this point at the end, note how verse 5 says, and there was no man to work the ground. Emphasis on work. Um, We'll come back to that. So verse 6, a mist is going up from the land to water it. Now this isn't what we're used to, is it? Especially in England. The water comes mainly from the sky, doesn't it? Lots of it. We have particularly diligent and effective rain clouds. But bear in mind in Genesis 2, we're not there yet with the whole oceans, evaporation, rain cycle. Instead, we have a mist. Um, John MacArthur, in his commentary on this verse, says, this should be translated flow. It indicates that water came up from beneath the ground as springs and spread over the whole earth in an uninterrupted cycle of water. Heavy rain is more the status quo after the great flood. Verse 7, let's dwell on this verse for a moment. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So God forms or fashions the first man. He isn't just whacked together with yogurt pots and sticky back plastic. This, this activity is deliberate and designed on God's part. He molds humans into a particular shape, with loving and painstaking attention to detail. But before we become too conceited, let's remember what we were made from, not from the valuable gold or the onyx that we hear about in verses 11 and 12. No, God makes us from common or garden dirt, mud, dust, the basic stuff the earth is made of. This material is nothing special. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this verse, makes an interesting observation. Let's quickly turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 15. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You see that? You knit me together in my mother's womb. I was woven together in the depths of the earth. We came from our our mother's womb. We come from the earth. And again, Job 1, 21a says... 
And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. So when we die, the womb that we return to is the dust of the earth as our bodies are laid to rest. And there's a strong metaphor there, tying the dust from which Adam was formed into the wombs in which we're all formed. So we're strongly associated to the stuff of the earth. But then the rest of verse 7, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So here we see that humans are so much more than just the atoms and the molecules that make up our bodies. God breathes his breath into us. Job 33, 4 says. Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The breath of the Almighty gives us life, gives us a soul. Remember how I said one of the attributes of God is that he sustains us? Without his breath, we couldn't live. We're not just dust. We are dust formed by God and filled with his breath. Wow! Verse 8, God plants a garden in Eden and that's where he puts man. God. God himself plants a garden. (coughs) What do you imagine when you read this verse? I mean, we do it without thinking, don't we? We visualize the things that we're reading. God plants a garden. So what's that going to be like? Do you, do you visualize a lawned area from, for Adam and Eve to play croquet and for their nippers to run about on? A few trees, maybe an herbaceous border, a garden gnome or two. No, I'm being ridiculous. Everyone knows garden gnomes are of the devil. I think... I think instinctively, when I've read this word garden, I've tended to think on quite a small scale. You know, there's a river going through it, and yes, you've got some trees, but I was thinking probably no more than a third of an acre. Do you know how big an acre is? No? An acre is about two-fifths of a hectare. Does that help? Doesn't help? Okay, an acre is a tenth of a square furlong. Is that any better? The point is that for some reason, when I think of the Garden of Eden, I don't think of it on a particularly grand scale. And that's crazy, isn't it? Here we have the creator of the entire universe. He's made Earth, he's made all the stars and other planets, and he's going to do what? Some kind of token gesture for Adam and Eve? No, of course not. I bet it was outstanding, magnificent. Sharon and I love going to visit stately homes and gardens with our wonderful friend Howard, and recently we visited Bodnant Gardens and Chirk Castle. I don't know if you've been to any of these places. Bodnant's gorgeous. So much variety, so many interesting specimens, and it's on such a grand scale. But there's one thing you can't say about Bodnant. It wasn't planted by God as a special place for humans to live. Look, if God decides to create a garden, it's going to be something else, isn't it? Something amazing. This would be a paradise on an unparalleled scale. Nothing like it before or since. And into this terraformed paradise, 
he places Adam and Eve. Verse 9, we have trees that are both beautiful and nourishing, aesthetically pleasing and bearing delicious edible fruits. Two particular trees of note, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, We don't really know the mechanics of this tree of life. Perhaps if Adam and Eve had carried on having access to this tree, they would have lived eternally on the earth. Or perhaps it was merely symbolic of God's sustaining power. We do know that the tree is restored in the end times. Revelation 2.7b says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And Revelation 22b says, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And this speaks of the restoration of paradise, the rediscovery of Eden for those who are faithful to God and accept Jesus. Now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we know even less about this tree. And perhaps there was nothing special about it at all. Its power was that God told them to leave its fruit alone. It was a test. We'll learn more about that test in the next sermon and when we go on to study Genesis chapter 3. Suffice it to say for now that until Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the fruit, they truly had no knowledge of evil. The very act of disobeying him, in that act they became aware of the nature of the evil that they themselves had committed. Uh, From verses 10 to 14 we find that Eden had four significant rivers and contained gold and precious stones and other rich resources. And many people have speculated, but no one knows where Eden was. And after the fall, humans were banished from Eden. And it's likely that God allowed Eden to be obliterated by the Great Flood. Certainly after the flood, the whole geography and ecology of the area would have seen dramatic changes. In verse 15, we see that God has placed man into this amazing garden paradise. And this verse says that Adam was to be a groundsman, to work it and keep it. And it's also implied that Adam would enjoy it. Remember verse 9, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So mankind is in the garden to tend it, but there's pleasure in this work. So that concludes the answer to our second question. What was God doing? He was terraforming. So, the third and final question, why did God do all this? Why did he terraform the earth? Why did he make such a lush and beautiful place for us? Uh, To put this question another way, God could have created any kind of habitat for the first humans. A lavish palace, a mansion built into the side of a mountain, a, a grand villa overlooking the sea. But no, he chose a garden. Why was that? So let's step back from this passage for a moment and see it in context. Dave preached to us last week from the start of Genesis chapter 2 about the rest that we enter into as children of God, the rest that sometimes we must work at. Just imagine for a moment this You're in the Garden of Eden. It's a sunny day. Around you are various trees, some tall, some short, some broad enough to sit under for shade. When the sun is growing in its strength, flowers of all varieties, roses, carnations, tulips, jasmine, honeysuckle, and more. This lovely warm scent is drifting by you, 
lazy bees are buzzing around, going about their work of pollination. They're no threat to you. A deer comes up to you and nuzzles you, looking for a rub and hoping you have a treat for her. Nearby, you can hear the sound of a running brook, and over the sound of the brook, birds are twittering and calling to one another. The combined noise is soothing. You feel completely at peace. Does that answer the question why God chose a garden as man's first dwelling? We may not be all avid nature lovers, but there's something uncomplicated and restful about being out in God's creation, away from roads and shops and factories and houses, away from Wi-Fi and mobile phone reception. Amen! We learn from this passage that was work to be done, but under such circumstances, wouldn't that work be an absolute joy? Tending such a delightful garden with a body in perfect condition, swimming in and drinking from the clearest of streams, lying down, well exercised, on the softest, most unspoilt ground. No email or text message notifications. No TV. No social media. Peace, rest, stillness. And yet, we humans love rest, but I think most of us love industry too. We are made to reach for more, to stretch ourselves, to go beyond what we already know. So in the Garden of Eden, we see the perfect setting both for rest and work. We don't know how long Adam and Eve lived there, but we could certainly imagine them making shelters there, the earliest forerunners, perhaps, of our housing today. The passage talks about the gold that was in the land. Given such an amazing place to live in, you could well imagine that they became explorers. They searched the land to find its treasures, both apparent and concealed. Finding the gold would have taken effort, but would have been so rewarding. Imagine being the first person ever to discover that glittering metal. In Eden, God created a nursery, if you like, a safe place for mankind to begin to understand the world around, a place where humans would begin to flourish, a paradise perfectly designed to bring out all the wonder and gifting within those first ancestors of ours. It was also a place for mankind to exercise authority. Keith talked about that a few sermons back. Here was a place where, as we'll see next week, we would begin to name the plants and animals, a place where we could start to shape it to our own designs and requirements. You can well imagine Adam and Eve, one of them saying to the other, darling, let's try moving those daffodils over there. And wouldn't it be lovely to create a little pasture here where the deer can graze? In short, this is a perfect picture of the grace of God. Generous blessings coupled with responsibility on our part. So I'd summarize the answer to the question why like this. God shaped and formed earth so that we could work, rest, grow, and take pleasure. To work, to rest, to grow, and to take pleasure. Or to put it another way, for our vocation, our vacation, our advancement, and our amusement. 
Or how about for our productivity, tranquility, maturation, and delectation? Uh, maybe our occupation, our relaxation, our proliferation, and our gratification. Okay then, just um, work, rest, growth, and pleasure. And that's just for starters. We'll see as we continue this series, the beauty of mankind's fellowship with God in those first days. And we'll continue to see how all this activity on God's part is constantly moving towards his end goal, to prepare for himself a people who will worship and love him, who he can save and redeem, and who will be united with him for all eternity, thanks to the saving work of Jesus Christ. What a picture of grace and joy we have in these few verses, a foretaste of what is in store for us, for those who serve and bless his name. The world we live in has undoubtedly been damaged by our sin and by the fall. Still, we see God's glory and kindness in the things that he's created and in the way that he's shaped a world fit for us to live in. Indeed, a world in which we can flourish. Can I encourage you in the week ahead, take time to get out into nature and just look around you. Take in the sights and the sounds. Do this with gratitude in your heart and with the expectation of the greater paradise that awaits us when we're finally gathered to our Father. We thank you, Lord, for the care that you have taken over this world. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you've poured out on us from day one that you're still pouring out on us. Lord, I ask that you will fill our hearts with gratitude, with thankfulness for all that you've done. May we be mindful of you, of what a privilege it is to learn who you are, to worship and to serve you, and to look forward to the eternity that we will spend with you one day. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.